Father, thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your church. And I also thank you, Father God, that you've given us the opportunity to fill young minds with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask as our children go this morning that you would be with them, that you would be with the teachers and helpers, and that, Father God, we would have another generation dedicated to your kingdom. Thank you, Father God, for this time this morning. Transform us, each one of us, into the image of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Before I begin the message, I wanted to mention something that has occurred that's very important. Um, as you know, there's a variety of Bible studies and, and different ministries that take place with First Baptist Church. One of those is youth group on Wednesday night. And I know this is in your bulletin, but I want us to rejoice because we've, we've got like 80 kids coming on Wednesdays, which logistically is like, whoa, how do we deal with that? That's part of the rejoice. But it becomes kind of tedious. And the reason that I want us to make sure we notice something about what's happening on Wednesday night is because it makes the tediousness, all of the logistics, all of the other components easier to handle. On Wednesday night, there were five girls and three boys who came to Christ. That's eight people who aren't going to hell. That needs to excite us. There's other things that are going on with that ministry. It's not just that some kids are coming to Christ. There's kids that are, that are beginning to, to learn some discipling, and, and they're, they're learning to put even more of it together. So, so we, we have some rescuing going on, and we also have some transformation that's occurring. I know this to be true because I talk with some of those kids, and it's like they're growing in Christ. We also have some of those young people that are working for the church behind the scenes. We've got, we've got a young man who's in college who's running the soundboard. Thank you, Sage. We've got people in the back running the, the streaming. So we've got, to, we've got to understand that God is doing something really amazing. We also have some Bible studies that God is doing some unique, unique things with. Lori shared that she's had some women's Bible studies. There were 45 women there. God is moving. God is doing great things. This all brings us to the same place of what we've been looking at for the past several weeks. And that is how we live as the church. Last week we looked at the structure of the church. This is all important because for us to be a part of what God is doing, the church needs to be strong. The church, that's each one of us. And each one of us needs to have a, a part to play. Last week we looked at structure. Well, within the structure of the church, the Bible teaches that there are actually two positions of leadership that are to function in the church. It's very clearly, that, clearly seen in Scripture. The, the, the first one is elders and the, the second one is deacons. You see those two areas of leadership. Both of those areas of leadership are to be in submission to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two areas of leadership also work in harmony with the congregation. 
This was hard for me to put together. Just teaching you about elders could take us months. There's a lot here, so I'm going to skim through some things. The point of this is we need to understand that God has established a structure. We're going to start with elders. And I have managed the notes on the elders to be pared down from about 15 pages to to three or four. So we won't have to have somebody, you know, provide lunch for us. The concept of elders in the church. This goes way back because... Elders were a part of, of, of leading God's people clear back in Genesis. You see elders mentioned in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Elders are seen in Israel's history and other places. For example, the prophets Ezra and Ezekiel talk about elders. So it's a Jewish, there's a Jewish connection. The first members of the church were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. So we need to keep that Jewish framework in place. Elder, as it's used in the New Testament, if you do a word study on elder, you'll, you'll discover that the most frequent use of the term elder in the New Testament is referring to Jewish leaders, and those Jewish leaders often opposed Jesus. For example, Matthew 27, 1. When morning came, all the chief priests... And the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So the elders were opposing Jesus. Now, something else in that that passage, you've got the elders, the chief priests, and you've also see those together. And you see that priesthood and elders combined. There's a connection there. So what do we do with this? Well, Jewish leadership included the scribes, it included the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and it included the priests. One of the things that you don't see connected to the church is the office of priest. The office of priest was very prominent in the history of Israel. Very obvious. But it's not seen in the early church. It's not a New Testament issue. There, There's no official priest in the New Testament. Priest. What we need to understand about a priest. A priest, the function of a priest was to present the people to God and God to the people. So there's a mediator function that's very big in the concept of a priest. There is no official priest in the New Testament because each believer in the church is a priest. Peter makes this clear. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, that you may proclaim the excellences of, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's no need in the church for a leader to function as a priest because every believer has access to God. I'm your pastor. I'm not your priest. You follow that? Okay, now let's, let's come back because that means we need to understand what elders are. And there's three terms, there's three Greek terms that are used for elder in the New Testament. Presbyteros, Episcopos, 
and poimeng. We could spend weeks on each one of these. Let's kind of filter it down. Presbyteros. It can be used in, in, in really two major ways in Scripture. One of them is to mean mature in age. Someone who is old, gray-haired. Or it can be used of rank or positions of responsibility. As the church took form, um, after the, the time of the apostles begins to end, presbyteros became a term for spiritually mature leaders in the church. I emphasize spiritually mature because it isn't necessarily an age maturity. It's spiritual maturity. These were men recognized by the strength of their moral character. Presbyteros was, was used in Acts and the epistles referring to a unique group of church leaders. For example, in Acts 14, we learn that when new churches were formed, when they were established by the apostles and, and other evangelists, the common practice was to appoint elders. 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The reality in Scripture is that every church mentioned in the New Testament had elders. You also see this very, very clearly in, in many of the writings of the early church history. Every church had elders. Let's go on. The next word describing elders is episcopos. And, and this means overseer. It literally means to be an overseer or a guardian. Some Bibles will translate this as bishop. Episcopos would be the Greek equivalent to the historic Hebrew concept of elders. An overseer in the New Testament was responsible for teaching, feeding, protecting, nurturing the people of God. Biblically, you have two things that are happening now already as we look at elders, presbyteros. That term is used to describe the character of the leader. And episcopos emphasizes the leader's responsibility. There's a third word that is also used in the New Testament for elders, poiming. This literally means shepherd or pastor. It's used of Christ in uh, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the great poimane, the great shepherd, the great pastor. In Ephesians 4.11, poimane is translated pastor, and I believe that may be the only place where it is translated pastor, and it is connected with teacher. And the Greek structure in that verse indicates that pastor and teacher go together. The, the emphasis here is that poimane is the pastoral care and feeding of God's people. There's a care here. There's a feeding. So these three terms, 
Presbyteros emphasizes the spiritual maturity of the man. Episcopos emphasizes the responsibilities of the man. Poimain emphasizes the man's heart for God's people. All three of these refer to the same office of leadership. Peter describes this and and includes them in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So Peter puts the three together in describing the office of elder. Paul very clearly gives us then some specific details concerning elders. And we, also, we, we often call these the qualifications of an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into snare, into a snare of the devil. We obviously don't have time this morning to go into all of those details of the qualifications. But there are some details that are very valuable to us to take away from this this morning. The first one is that in this list, we we call them the qualifications. There's one of those qualifications that's not a character quality, and that is teaching. So the, the majority, the vast majority of the qualifications are about character. The tasks of elders are important. But the ability to perform specific tasks is not as important as a man's character. In 1 Timothy 3.2, I see the most foundational qualification, and that is to be above reproach. Now, being above reproach doesn't mean that an elder has no sin. It means the elder is not living an obvious habitual lifestyle of sin and is actively living an example of confession of sin and repentance. You you see, you know, right now you've got your pastors as elders. You've got the three men who we call elders. And if you put all of us in the same room and went, aren't we good? None of us sin. We all just sinned. We're, we're sinners. And I look at Zeke out there, and you know the only sin he has this morning is his tie is crooked. Yeah. Elders aren't perfect. 
It doesn't mean that they're without sin. The reality is that if the church requires men who who are aspiring to be elders to perfectly meet all of the requirements that Paul lists, the church would have no elders. That's a reality. It doesn't mean that we're lowering the standards. It means that the standards are so high that the truth is that none of us meet those completely. Is that a problem? No, because even Paul struggled with his sin nature, didn't he? Read Romans 6 and 7, especially 7. An elder then is spiritually mature in his warfare against his sinfulness, like Paul. His lifestyle demonstrates his heart's commitment to and the pursuit of holiness. Not that he's arrived. Another thing that is difficult and has been difficult for the church is in verse 2. The phrase, the husband of one wife. This phrase literally means a one-woman man. This means an elder is single-minded in his devotion to his wife. That's what it means. If we take that phrase too far, we run into a problem because most men in the church, I know this to be true in in virtually, I, I, I wouldn't even say virtually, all of the churches that I've been in and served in, all of the men that are married are married to one woman. But all of those men are not elders. All of those men are not qualified to be elders. So it's difficult to to make that a spiritual requirement if we go too far. The issue that Paul is addressing continues to be what he started with in this list, and that is the idea of being above reproach. The truth is that in my experience, I have known men who are exceptional elders in the churches that I've belonged belonged to and, and been involved with. And those exceptional elders have been divorced. And some go, oh no, we're all going to go to hell. I also have known some exceptional elders in churches who were single. They've never, ever been married. How can that be? We need to be very careful when we come to these kinds of passages that we don't read into Scripture our own ideas and traditions. We also must be careful that we don't lower the standards that God has established. The two have to to balance one another. The truth is, as I've worked as a, as a pastor and I've associated with pastors for over 20 years now and, and, and actually more than that, some churches suffer greatly because the church has improperly eliminated godly, gifted men from seeking the position of elder. Why do we do that? It's because we have improperly treated such things as divorce. One of the men that I know that is a a great elder, a fantastic elder, 
But the truth of his life is that he's had multiple marriages, he dealt with drugs, and he had an anger issue. So he's got all this mess in his life, but he's an elder. The truth of his life is that all of those issues, the multiple marriages, the anger, the drugs, all of those things occurred before he was saved. So the mistake many churches make is that they go back in time and they say, because you were divorced when you were young, now that you've converted to Christ and you have your life together, so to speak, you can't be an elder. Makes no sense. And it's not scriptural. The other one that hurts the church is, is one of age. Yeah, I get it. We want those men to have a certain maturity, but that maturity needs to be spiritual maturity. I have associated, I've, I've worked with a, a district, on a district board for a group of churches, and, and in that work, I remember working with a church that had a fantastic elder. And he's never been married. He wasn't even dating when I knew him. The whole church was trying to find him, you know, trying to work that out. Kind of like we've done with somebody else. <clears throat> um, but that's a, that's a tall tale that we'll leave. Gotcha, brother. <laughs> he teased me this morning about being short, so I just threw it right back at him. Love you, brother. I get the age part, but I have known men who have been believers for decades and decades who are in their 50s, let's say, who don't qualify as elders because they're not spiritually mature. I've known some very young men who are very spiritually mature. The spiritual maturity and the character issues are what we need to be after as a church. It's very clear. An elder is to have an impeccable reputation within the church and outside the church. If that, if that is not there, then the church is not strong. There are many, many other important issues that we must address about elders. One of those is perhaps the most controversial. I'm going I'm to deal with two very controversial issues this morning, and, and, and maybe I should have Emily go home and pack. No. The first controversial issue is can women be elders? And I believe strongly from a biblical standpoint that the answer is no. Not because I'm against women. In, it goes this way. So here's, here's the way my thinking works this out. In Paul's qualification, in his list, he, he begins with that statement, a one-woman man. Okay, wouldn't it be impossible for a woman to be a one-woman man? That always, that always kind of slaps me kind of, wait a minute. Okay, now you can't, you can't take that completely too far. 
because it creates some other issues. But th- that's where I start. Another reason is that in that same passage, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the requirements for an elder are written as masculine. Paul just continually uses the masculine. Another is earlier in 1 Timothy, he's, he's addressing women. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this has been misused repeatedly by the church to put women in their place. That's not what Paul was after. This is not Paul's way or the church's way of oppressing women. There is no prejudice in what Paul is getting at. If we take that one verse and we remain in that one verse and we build a doctrine on that one verse, then we err. Because Paul actually answers, his, answers the reason why in the next verse. He states this in, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the reason of Paul's statement is rooted in the order of creation and the events of the fall. God has established an order which is not to be used to diminish the value of women. God has established an order. This is his church, right? Jesus is the head. God has established an order. And in him establishing the order, he's not saying women are of less value. That would go against his nature, and that would also go against Scripture. In this church, and very similar to other churches I've served in, we have some exceptionally gifted women who are spiritually mature, talented teachers, awesome servants, amazing Christian women. Their role in the church is only limited, really, in this one position of elder. This is not meant to diminish the value of women. It's to remain biblical in what God has established. There's tons more. There's so much more that could be said about elders. But we're going to move on because we need to, we need to put this together with the other position, the second position of leadership in the church, and that is deacons. Deacon... Deacon literally means servant. That means that a deacon, in in that leadership position of deacon, serves the congregation. But they don't oversee the church. A deacon, I I believe a a deacon serves in in a variety, in, in many diverse practical ways. And they do this so that elders can focus on their specific tasks of leading, and there's that overall service to the congregation. 
I believe that a good place to, to, to look at this idea of, of serving is in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. And in that story, that's the story of, of Stephen and, the, and the, the coming together of the body of Christ to meet a ministry need. Ministry was not happening. So people were not being served appropriately. So they come together and they decide what we need to do is we need to choose seven men to serve in that ministry. We very often use this to show the beginning of the office of deacon. Deacons serve. And there's two reasons, biblically, that deacons serve. And those two reasons are why churches need deacons. One is to meet specific needs of the body of Christ. That, that covers a lot of territory. Let me back up to Wednesday. There is a bunch of, of people, mostly women, I think, who have been cooking for 80 to 90 people every Wednesday. That's serving the body of Christ in a practical way, correct? You can give all those people an applause. Cooking for 90 people? Come on! <laughs> Woo! I'm going to pick on somebody else this morning. I always do, but they love me. Who was here this morning at uh, 5.30? Did you notice that the snow was pushed off the parking lot and the sidewalks were cleared? A servant. So we could say, there's a deacon, couldn't we? Thank you, Swade. There's a lot of other ways that people serve that could be attached to this concept of deacons. That's one way that deacons serve, one reason that they serve. Another is to, to free the elders. By meeting the specific needs of the body of Christ and taking care of a lot of the practical things, the elders can fulfill their primary responsibility of oversight and teaching and, and guarding the church. Deacons also, like elders, have to meet character qualifications. Paul gives specifics, and they're very similar for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, so he's referring back to elders. Likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children with, and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The church has wrestled with this passage and specifically with one issue. And this is where I'm going to step into that uh, controversial area. Are women allowed to be deacons? Some point to verse 8. Deacons is a masculine term, and they say right there, it's a masculine term, so they eliminate women. 
There's a problem with that in the Greek, though, and that is that the Greek doesn't have a feminine form of, of, of deacon. It, it doesn't have one. We sometimes in the church use the term deaconess. That's, that's total English. There, there is no feminine of deacon in the Greek. Another problem that we have is verse 12, let each be the husband of one wife. So, so how, can we, how can we have women as deacons? The church has wrestled with this. This, is, this has been huge. This has been a, a, a source of conflict. I don't think it should be. And I have some reasons why I fall into the category where I do. Some of the problem also comes in the way Paul wrote this. Verse 11 is difficult. It's one of those places in Scripture where you can interpret it two different ways in the Greek and be perfectly accurate in both ways. So then what do we do? It's one of those times when I study the word and I just go, couldn't, Paul, come on. Just make it absolutely clear. Just say, women can be deacons. Then we're just, we got it set, right? Or not. So we have to deal with that verse. It just shows up, it just pops up. They're wives. And that's where the problem is. Is is he is he addressing wives or women? And you could translate it either way. And be correct. One of the places we go is the greater context. This is a good hermeneutic. This is how we study the word. So one one way we look at this to begin with is in the context that Paul's writing. He's not addressing all the women of the congregation. But he's addressing women, whether it's women or wives, either one. He's he's addressing a small group of females who are connected in some way to leadership. You see that? That's the context. That's the greater context. Now, where my mind goes, and I'm not saying I'm perfectly right, you can come argue with me in the office if you want to. I'd like that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> I believe that Paul is addressing this group as a group of female deacons. One of the reasons is that he just tosses this in. Verse 11 just shows up. That's a, that's a little bit of a weak argument, but that's, that's where my thinking goes. Another part of my reasoning is that Romans 16.1, he mentions Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sencria, and, and she's called a servant, a servant of the church. So we have a woman who's being called a deacon. Okay, now, there's some weakness in that as well. However, that also influences me that we've got to deal with these women who serve. And that's another reason that I lean towards women being allowed in this position of leadership. From the beginning of the church, and I see this implied at least throughout Scripture, uh, the New Testament, especially in Acts, we have women serving. 
It, it, it's a historical fact. From the very beginning, there's been spiritually mature women who have served the church. And I believe in our church, in FBC, we have several women who more than adequately meet the qualifications spiritually to lead as deacons. And the reason I say that is because that's what they're doing. We also have several men who are more than adequate in the qualifications to lead as deacons. We also have some women and some men who are spiritually qualified who aren't doing anything. Where this leads me in this idea of living as the church and our structure is that I believe that FBC, and I'm suggesting, I'm not mandating, I'm suggesting, I say that so that my elder brother doesn't come in Tuesday and completely destroy me. I love Zeke. He's so good. I believe that we need to, as a church, recognize and establish a group of men and women as deacons. The goal that we have is to be as biblical as we can. So we want to see elders in our structure, and we want to see deacons in our structure. As we do that, whether it includes women, men, okay, I, I lean towards including women. What we need to also emphasize is that this leadership group called deacons, they are not a second-class or junior varsity team of leadership. They're not the JV. God has established two groups to provide effective leadership for the church. Each of those groups has unique responsibilities. I am so glad that my brother, that I love dearly, came this morning and swept the walks and pushed the snow so that I could pay more attention to getting prepared to deliver a message. Because he's not willing to stand up here and preach. Is that ever going to happen? No. Nope. Yeah, I... Each of those groups have unique responsibilities. Those responsibilities differ for elders or deacons, but their value to the church is not different. God does not say, well, I value you more than them, so I'll make you an elder and then deacon. That's not God's purpose. That's not where this should take the church. I'm going to finish with one last thought. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to step into a dangerous area. And it has to do with our church and other churches that I've served struggling to find qualified men in particular willing to serve. And it's not just serve in the capacity of an elder. It's the willingness to serve in leadership at all. And in some ways, serve in any capacity. So, so, you know, we mentioned, you know, that Paul doesn't pick on women. I'm going to pick on men. Because the reality in most churches is that we have a whole bunch of women who are willing to serve. Where are the men? 
And one of the problems that I've seen and I've read about is that men wrongly disqualify themselves for leadership because they see themselves as not possessing certain organizational skills or preaching ability or seminary training. For some, it's just, I tried that once and it didn't work well, so I'll never do it again. The reality is the church needs to be strong. And to be strong, we need men and women who will stand up and say, the church matters. I choose that. So, so why aspire, as Paul talks about it? It's good for a man to aspire to, to be an elder. Why, why lead? And one of the reasons, if not the greatest reason, is the church needs to be strong. The church's mission is to reach a world filled with people who are going to hell. And the church's mission is to reach those people and transform them. Rescue and transform. So that's our mission. And the church needs to be strong to be able to do that. For the church to be strong, we need people to stand up and say, I choose to do that for the church, for the Lord Jesus Christ. I submit to the head and I'm going to be what he wants me to be. Maybe I don't have all of the speaking abilities. That's fine. God's going to do with you what he wants to do. Another reason for being in leadership is, is that it's something that God uses, especially in men. I don't think it's just limited to men, but I've seen this, especially in men. When a man, in particular, places himself in a position of leadership. He places himself on a path to be more like Christ. The coasting stops, so to speak. The pursuit of godliness increases. We are a society that that coasts. We are so comfortable. Why bother with anything? I mean, somebody'll do it. Yeah. Maybe, sort of. The reality is the church needs to be strong. And in this day and age that we're living in, and as we continue forward in what's happening historically in our society, the church needs to be strong. To be strong, we need people to stand up and choose the church. Participate. We've talked about that so many times in this series. The other part that hinders men is I'm, I'm such a sinner. I'm not qualified. That takes us back to what I said earlier. If you're waiting to lead in the church until you are perfect in all of your ways, you have a problem. You see, elders... We can take the elders we have at FBC. They have not finished the race. Their warring against sin continues. They've not come to a place where there's no more learning, growing, or repenting. They're still running the race. So the exhortation this morning, and, and primarily I've, I've directed this at men, stop coasting spiritually. Step into the roles of of being a leader. Maybe that's teaching Sunday school. 
One of my favorite people, is, his name is Gary. He taught fifth grade, no, five-year-olds for years and years and years and years. And you, you know, Gary? Gary teaches? He loved it, and the kids just adored him. He made a choice. He made a choice to step into a role of helping the church, of making the church strong. Let's get excited, men and women both, about something that's eternal. And the only place that I know of where we can do that is the church. So this morning I exhort all men, in particular, and women, to make a choice for the eternal rewards of God's kingdom. If you want motivation, there's a reward. That eternal reward, it won't be stolen from you. It can't be taken away from you. Make a choice to place a higher value on lives saved, people transformed and matured into the image of Christ. Make a choice for that by helping make the church strong. Be a part of a strong, powerful church. We need that. Not all men who even take on that challenge of stepping up and taking on leadership. Not all of them are going to be elders. But God is calling all men to step up and take on the challenge and serve the body of Christ. Not all women will serve in a position of leadership or teaching. But God is calling them to step up and take on the challenges of serving the body of Christ. We do this for the one great reason the church will be strengthened and a strong church glorifies God. And we get something in return, eternal rewards. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you, Father God, for the gifts that you've given to each one of us. I ask, Father God, that you'd move in our hearts in such a way that we yield to the Holy Spirit and choose I ask, Father God, that you'd strengthen this church. Make it so powerful that this community is completely rescued and transformed. Thank you, Father God, that we have opportunities that you've made available. Help us, Father God. And as we serve your church, be glorified, be honored, and be lifted up. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done to bring us into your kingdom. Use us in that kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.